Hello, my name is Jasper Bouvery. Welcome to Green Persuaders, the positive podcast where I talk to people who are dedicating their lives to the planet. I'll be finding out where their ideas have come from and about the journeys they've been on to realise their dreams. This week, for the very first edition, I'm not moving far from home. Ed Kirk Smith, also known as the Rebel Farmer, lives in a neighbouring village to me in East Kent. He runs a business selling microgreens and works with local schoolchildren promoting sustainability in vegetable growing. When I met him in late March, we started in the room where he grows his microgreens. In this room we have, uh, we have a whole host of different microgreens which are grown on a one and two week cycle to provide local nutrition. What have we got here? I can see we've got some peas, pea shoots, and uh, there's some beetroot down there, isn't there? Is it? That's actually a red amaranth, yeah, oh, right. a really beautiful pink colour. Um, we did actually grow beetroot, so it, it looks very similar, but we found that um, the seed holes on the beetroot aren't so tasty when you find them in your salad. So uh, we've got like a real nice, a solid variety of pea shoots, sunflower shoots, We've got three different types of coloured radish, uh, China Rose, Daikon and Rambo, great name. Um, and we also, really, I really like is the carrot. It's got a really nice aromatic type taste to it as well. But uh, the amaranth and the, the carrot are almost decoration. Not gonna it, provide it's you it's a very colourful room. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you, you've got, it's only at about sort of, uh, what, 10, 15 feet, foot square. And it's uh, got um, tinfoil on the insides of the walls. And, and pink lamps, do they, do they help the shoots grow? Uh, yeah, the pink lamps you see on the top actually, are, uh, we're, we're just at that time of year when, when we want to give a head start to tomatoes and, and peppers, uh, and, and you may have some aubergines, although I don't have some, just to give them that head start because they have such a long growing season before they fruit. So um, here at the end of March, we're just, we're just getting a, a whole variety of things growing with the, with the full spectrum light that is provided with, with the pink light. Um, but most of the microgreens are grown just of a very standard um, LED rope light, which um, is all that's necessary essentially to, to get the seeds going and started. Most of the energy that they've got is coming from the seed themselves and we're just providing a little bit by growing them in a nice peat-free soil and then just, yeah, just providing them that little bit of light to uh, get started. Ed's business isn't just about microgreens. He also has polytunnels where he grows lettuces and brassicas, providing salads to high-end stores and restaurants often decorated with beautiful flowers. Later in the summer, he told me, the brassicas will be replaced with tomatoes. Not just one type of tomato, but 45 different varieties, because it's not just localism that's important to Ed, but also genetic diversification. We also have uh, a wheat field. Um, we've been looking at heritage wheat. Yeah. How, how is heritage wheat different from normal wheat? Well, um, they're, they're older varieties that haven't been um, hybridised or messed with too much. So they're, they're sort of older, taller varieties and they have a, a lot more of a genetic diversity to your standard um, bread wheats that you'd, you'd find in most of your breads today. Yeah, we're sort of looking into uh, the resilience of the wheat crop, you know, and, and, and looking at, at how we might um, relocalise the bread, essentially. And although we used a combine harvester to get our first crop off the ground we did we did mess around with certain techniques using sickles and scythes to look at the difficulty of actually doing it without uh, fossil fuels because with the way things are going we're looking at rising fuel costs we're looking at rising import taxes we're looking at rising cost of, of things like wheat so we just we're just looking at 
ways to look at a future for, for bread um, in a sort of relocalised fashion. Sickles and scythes, a world without combine harvesters. Before anyone laughs or starts talking about the need to join the real world, it's worth pausing to consider just how much the real world has been changing over the past few months. Farmers, like the rest of us, are coping with a dramatic increase in the price of fuel. A new tax on agricultural or red diesel, designed to incentivise farmers away from fossil fuels, came into effect in April. This, added to the Ukraine situation, means that farmers are paying about double what they were paying for a litre of fuel compared with last year. So Ed isn't a lone individual considering a different future. Indeed, you could argue that anyone in the real world should be doing exactly what he's doing, talking to other people, trying to work out a way forward. It's a very much an experiment and we've been working with a, with a group called the South East Grain Alliance who helped me source the seed and have given me all the advice I need on, on trying to uh, get it growing and uh, where to get it milled. And yeah, it's a lovely sort of... Uh, consortium of, of millers, bakers and farmers that are all talking to each other about the future of wheat. One thing that occurred to me about Ed was how engaged he is with talking with everyone, not just bakers and millers, but also local school children from nearby schools, including one bang next door to his small holding. The children did their best to make their voices heard while we were carrying out the recording. I'm very, very keen on sharing the knowledge that I've gained. I find it's very hard to change people's habits on the way they consume food, um, but you can look at different ways of, uh, of influencing the way people eat by essentially working with uh, younger people that are always so excited to see how things grow. So we're, um, we're working now with Brook School and have previously done some work with Y Primary locally to encourage kids to look at where their food comes from and to understand how it's grown. So, microgreens, polytunnels full of veggies, working with schoolchildren, that's just about completed the tour of the premises. A quick nod to part of the field set aside for glamping, a teepee for Londoners wanting a spell of outdoor living. And then we went inside one of the polytunnels to discuss how it all came about. Where did his inspiration come from, I wanted to know. And is he trying to influence anyone in particular now? I began by asking him what the site consisted of when he bought it in 2016. Um, quite a quite a run-down little house and uh, two and a half acres of land, which had only just been previously grazed for the for at least the last 30 years. Anyway, um, it was a uh, quite a quite a change from my. Uh, London backgrounds, Zone 2 in London. Um, what were you doing up there? Well, I'd uh, been brought up in London and, and, and really never quite found the thing that I, I wanted to be doing. I, I spent the years previous to being here as a, as a self-employed tree surgeon, which was uh, something that I, I got into and, and really loved working outside. Um, and, um, yeah, really sort of wanted to uh, sort of continue working outside but knew that tree surgery wasn't going to last forever, really, as a, as a physical o occupation. It's a young man's job, essentially. So part of the move here was, was really looking at, uh, you know, um, moving into a different field, um, literally into the field, and, uh, and starting to, to grow some food. Did you, did you know exactly what you wanted to do when you arrived on the plot? I mean, did you, did you think, right, polytunnel, polytunnel, 
microgreens, this is what's going to happen? Um, no, no, it's very been very progressive. I think my main influence actually has sort of been the birth of my son. That is definitely something I can relate to. I remember walking down the Woolwich Road with my newborn twins in 1997, wanting to push people off noisy motorcycles and puncture the tyres of overbearing buses and lorries. Ed described how he spent much time during daddy daycare researching how he might live today to ensure a better future for his child. How protective and noble that is, and surely the very essence of sustainability, the desire to protect the planet for the benefit of our children and our children's children. Why don't we continue to keep these thoughts in mind as our children grow up, I wonder? I asked Ed if there was anything in particular that he came across in his research which was especially influential. There was one particular thing, actually, thinking about it, that really, I think it was a TED Talk, actually, yeah, by um, a guy called Jeff Lawton, who was a, a permaculturalist, um, one of Bill Mollison's original disciples um, from Australia. Yeah, it really got to me, that, um, this idea of permaculture, where we could look at positive solutions to the problems that we we see. And that's not just through growing veg, but also in sort of the, the mental outlook and, and, and the business structure and, and the economics of, of life. Permaculture, that again is something I can relate to. In the 1990s, before the birth of my own children, I went on my own odyssey of exploration, looking for answers to the world's woes, and I too came across permaculture, and Bill Mollison in particular. This visionary Tasmanian, who was inspired by observing the ecosystems of Australian marsupials, believed passionately in maximising output from little input. We should, he believed, all behave like cuddly and fairly lazy koala bears. So plants should be perennial, we shouldn't do too much digging in order to protect the soil, and everything should be reused or recycled. I mentioned to Ed that I still follow many permaculture principles in my own life, and I asked him if there was anything in particular that grabbed him. Um, I think it was it was about the the soil health actually, and um, that realization that there might only be a certain number of harvests left in 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 the soils around even in Britain. Permaculture just suddenly showed me that I could possibly use what was my waste products from from tree surgery, and I could I could turn those chippings and into soil um, mm. and that was that was really one of the really first big things that that struck me it was like oh well if I got a little bit of land I can I can I can take what was my waste product the, the thing that costs me money to get rid of each at the end of each day in London um, and if I'm out in the country I can take that waste product and I can I can turn that into a resource um, and I can I can sell you know I can sell um, logs for firewood and that would you know that's that's pretty carbon neutral too and and and, and just all of these things suddenly realizing that that there's no such thing as waste and and using permaculture you can you can find a solution to all of these waste products and turn them into you know economic resources and and that was the bit that really sprung towards what I was doing and how I could help it's one thing to think these things but quite another to put your thoughts into effect especially if you have a partner and a baby to think about as well. Babies might have their ways of demanding a better world, but they also take up an awful amount of time. 
and there seemed a chance that reading matter for mummy during mummy daycare might not have been the same as what Ed had been researching. What did his partner Kat think about his plans? Uh, she thought I was mad, yeah. Um, and I think I was slightly uh, deranged at the time. I, I think I, I, it was, a, like I suggested, it's, you know, having a, um, suddenly having this child to, that you, you've got to look after was such a change for me. And I think, uh, yeah, it took me a while to, to convince her of what I was doing. And, and for the first few years that when we were down in Kent, she really, really wasn't sure what I was up to. I had a vision and I put together this design of how I wanted to live and what I wanted to do with the land in order to make that possible. And there was no money to do that. Um, we'd, we'd spent it all on, the, on buying a new house and getting a mortgage and getting that place ready to, to live in. And she was continuing to work in London? She was, yeah. So we're, we're, we're lucky enough here, aren't we, we're, um, with the high-speed link into St Pancras from Ashford, which is just a 10-minute mm. drive from here. That, that's quite a different life, isn't it? it you know, it's somebody who's actually uh, involved in the, the maelstrom and the, the conventional life in London, and here you are setting yourself up as the rebel farmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was something that came along a little bit later. I, di I didn't have uh, thoughts towards business to start with. It was it was more about um, uh, my own personal morals and ethics, um, just wanting to create my own food for me and my family, really, quite selfishly. And then, you know, I realised that I needed to form some economics around what I was doing. But essentially, the system does sort of work you know it's just it, I'm getting to a place where it does sustain itself if it didn't come down to you know um, paying much more than a basic rent but uh, you know it's, it's, it's hard yeah with the with the house that it comes with this land that's that's the expensive part but land itself is very expensive now as well and access to it is something that's that's very difficult for someone that might want to do what I'm doing so so this sort of brings me to the sort of the next section really of of this podcast and I'm, I'm just interested to know obviously you've created a sort of dream setup here but who do you need to persuade to actually make it more feasible for you know everyone on you know anyone to be able to do this and 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 is that something which crosses your mind to actually try and make it more sort of generally available yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I'm, it's becoming more and more important to me is to help my students and the people that come and visit that might be really interested in gaining access to land is to find out how we go about that. I don't think it's going to be... Um, it's, it's not going to be very easy <laughs> that land prices continue to, to go up and any parcels of land that are being sold are generally sold with the idea of a developer putting a house on, on such land. Um, and cashing in on that bit of land uh, rather than starting a little farm. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think the, the help is going to probably have to come from the top down. The government is going to have to put more and more um, emphasis on, on a small farm and, and relocalisation. But the moment, it seems to be still quite a long way away. But if, if you could sit down with someone or sit down with some a group of people maybe to influence them and to actually m move them in the direction of your ideas who would it be <laughs> that's a good question um i don't think i thought 
like that before, but um, it would be, you know, I'd, I'd prefer people to come and see. Um, you know, the visual um, examples are very important and actual sort of smelling, touching, seeing the colours up, up close is, is very important. A crowd to put around this table would be probably, you know, the people of, of DEFRA, uh, I'd hope, I think, to sort of look at possible alternative ideas um, and also just, you know, the people around me, the local farmers, um, local people that work within the, the food system um, to, to really just work together and collaborate uh, rather than to compete. There's no space for competition anymore. We really just all need to work together um, to create food for our communities and, uh, and a future for our children. A lot of what Ed is doing seems to make so much sense. I can certainly vouch for how great it is to have a food producer on my doorstep who doesn't just produce one crop. I'm also full of admiration for what he's doing with schoolchildren, chiselling himself some space away from the national curriculum to instil in some lucky children the love of nature, of growing things, perhaps also an understanding of what makes good food. Yet much of what he's doing currently makes no sense at all. Financially, it is for the moment a bit of a struggle. As he said himself, there's no money in vegetables. So it's to his enormous credit that he keeps going, waiting for the time when the ways of the world turn in his direction. I think that's going to be a feature of many of the people who I talk to in this podcast. In order to plot our way to a better future, it's perhaps necessary to ignore the mad economics of the present day. Next week, I'm going to talk to an actor who came to recognise the wastefulness of the theatre industry and set up a sustainable theatre company. The podcast will be published next Wednesday, the 13th of July. Please subscribe so you don't miss it.